The title of the message is How to Protect Your Heart in the Battle. How to protect your heart in the battle. There is a battle, a big one. Let me tell you, in 2015, I was so moved when Benjamin Netanyahu came to America. He gave a message, you remember this, to the joint session of Congress. And basically his message was that there is an enemy of humanity. And he wanted to do his best to awaken you know, Americans, but not just awaken Americans, the world, to the fact that there is an enemy of humanity. You know, and prior to coming to the States, he had made mention many times that the Nazis believed in a superior race, but this particular regime, the Iranian regime, believes in a superior faith. This faith is no friend to freedom, he said. This particular faith of the Iranian regime actually believes in a coming Messiah, uh, the Mahdi, who is going to establish an Islamic state throughout the world on the heels of devastation, which is going to be triggered. This new beginning of the Messiah, the Islamic Messiah coming, is going to be triggered by the destruction of Israel. And the Iranians believe and you've heard this many times, that Israel is the little Satan, and of course, the United States is the big Satan. From their view, the destruction of the United States is a foreordained uh, uh, act by, you know, the worship of Allah and what they believe is going to take place. When Netanyahu came, of course, it's in the context of whether or not we're going to uh, sign uh, an agreement, a nuclear agreement with Iran. So it was politically charged, of course. But Netanyahu said this. He said, America's founding document promises life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Iran's founding document pledges death, tyranny, and the pursuit of jihad. His message was simply this. The greatest dangers facing our world is the marriage of militant Islam with nuclear weapons. Now, why did I begin this way? Because there is a battle taking place that most people don't realize is even at play. There is opposition that we experience individually as a church, as a community, as a country. Every single human being on planet Earth is experiencing it directly or indirectly. Uh, this opposition behind the scenes, it's supernatural. There is a real enemy. Just like Netanyahu came, came and said, look, Man, you, you got to understand how these guys think in Iran. I don't think you quite understand it. You need to understand it. The Apostle Paul here, I mean, in, in chapter 5, or chapter 6, verse 10 down to verse 20, is basically saying, look, I, you, you got to understand there is a battle. There's a battle against an enemy of humanity, an enemy of your life, your family, the church, and he's identifying how we can experience the strength of the Lord amidst this real battle against the real enemy that is demonic in nature, which is to say, look, that what we see is not just what exists, that there are realities be beyond what we see. There are supernatural realities. It's not that you have God in one corner in the boxing ring and then you have Satan in the other and they're co-equals. But the reality is there are demonic realities. And the two biggest mistakes, and we talked about this last week, two biggest mistakes when addressing the supernatural, particularly demonic influence, is either to dismiss it. 
you know, out of sight, out of mind, just dismiss it, or to exaggerate his influence. Like, oh my goodness, you know, a flickering light or a little bump in the night. That, you know, that must be the enemy. So it's like, it's almost as if, and I don't want to speak for Satan in any way, shape, or form, but the strategy of the enemy, it seems, is either to lull people asleep as if he doesn't exist, you know, as if, just getting back to Netanyahu, that the Iranian regime is not really a threat, so don't worry about it, or to exaggerate the influence. Are you with me on this? And so here you have Paul writing what I think is like, well, it's, it's inspired by God. I mean, I just think it's one of the most phenomenal books ever, ever communicated, ever penned that identifies the genius plan of the Heavenly Father in His Son. And he is ending it, and he says, finally, let's pick it up here in verse 10, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you would be able to stand against the wiles, the methodologies of the devil. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, not just some of it, that you'd be able to withstand in the evil day. I love this phrase, and having done all to stand. I mean, done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth. We addressed that last week. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness, which we're going to deal with this morning. Having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And above all, take the shield of faith with which you'll be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Take the helmet of salvation, sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints for me, the utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Okay, watch this. We have Paul making reference to a Roman soldier, a Roman soldier's armor. The various pieces of the armor represent uh, aspects of experiencing divine power. I mean, is there such a thing that you can actually experience divine power? Absolutely. And, and the first one he mentions, this belt that kind of holds everything together, is the belt of truth. We talked about it last week. What is truth? Well, Jesus said, I am the truth. The gospel is the truth. The truth sets us free. I mean, the question is, like, what is holding your life together? Is truth holding your life together? Is the truth of who God is and who you are in Christ, is it holding every aspect of your life together? Or, check it out, is there some compartmentalization going on? So in other words, it's like, okay, well, like the Lord is the Lord of my life in this particular area, but he's not in that area. And not to apply, imply that any of us are perfect or complete, that we're not in process. I mean, we have a little model here, model here that everyone's welcome. No one's perfect. But because Jesus is alive, all things are possible. Can I hear a big amen to that? I love that saying. I mean, and Paul would say, hey, I'm not perfect, paraphrasing. I'm still in process. Hey, great job, Paul. I mean, great job to just 
Well, to be authentic and transparent and to be honest because compartmentalization would be, um, I'm going to live in denial and I'm allowing some type of compromise in my life, which is corruption to have an impact like a cancer that spreads and that then would overcome me. I mean, look, there is such a thing as allowing a foothold of compromise. Okay, but we need to be honest with, oh, listen, there is some compromise in my life. I need to address that, put on the belt of truth because a foothold of compromise leads to a stronghold. It doesn't mean I'm perfect, but I'm honest and authentic. I am before God in prayer and honest with myself. We need the belt of truth. Listen, don't give the enemy a stinking foothold because a little opening leads to big breakdown. Are, are, are you tracking with that? I know you are. Okay, so we talked about that last week. Look, look at verse 14. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Oh, this is big. Hey, the Roman breastplate was essential in battle because it protected vital organs, protected your heart, protected your liver and your lungs, your kidneys. And the implication is that it will have a big impact. Watch this. This righteousness, what is it, you know? I mean, there's, of course, the breastplate to a Roman soldier, but the, but the breastplate is being likened to righteousness. Okay, what is the righteousness? Okay, we're going to talk about it. But the implication is, you know, it protects your vital organs. It protects what you think, how you think, kind of what you're feeling even, the choices that you make. Okay, it protects your inner life which is going to have a big impact on your outlook and your attitude and the choices and your actions. And there are three realities that really make up the compound, it could be said, of the metal of the breastplate. And we have the notes up here. We're going to just break this down. It's also in your notes. Uh, if you open up your bulletin, if you're into that, it's okay. You can fill in these answers. But it's like, okay, what is, what is the breastplate of righteousness? Well, this breastplate is made up of kind of a compound one of which the reality is of the truth of justification in Christ, which actually addresses the past realities of our life, declaring us righteous or just as if we've never sinned. I mean, Paul writes in Romans 5, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Look up here, you guys. Justification is a legal term. It carries the idea of that righteousness has been downloaded, let's just say, in your spiritual bank account. Let's say, for example, you are like $100,000 in debt, and then, you know, you have, your dad is this multi-billionaire. Um, wouldn't that be cool? <laughs> no, okay. And uh, he just like puts a billion dollars in your bank account, it not only covers the debt you are experiencing, but it infuses enough monetary value to give you what you need and a whole lot more. Justification is a result of what Christ accomplished on the cross, became sin for us that we might be the righteousness of God in him. Okay? So it's like, oh, thank you, Lord. So it's like, therefore, Father, you see me as you see your, in your son. All your promises are yes and amen. It's this, I never sinned. 
And it's more than that righteousness has been infused into my account. I say that's good news. The second thing is sanctification. Like these are the compounds that make up, you know, this breastplate. Well, sanctification addresses the present realities of our life. And this carries the idea that we are set apart by God, made holy, given the power to live a godly and holy life. And one of the key verses is Philippians 2, verses 12 through 13. And Paul says, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to do for his good pleasure. So in other words, you are his kid. He's given you his DNA, literally his nature. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead indwells you as a follower of Jesus. Can I hear an amen to that? All right. So work out what he has worked in you. It's like, man, goodness gracious, Father, you're awesome. You the Father is behind the scenes. Jesus is working. The Holy Spirit is at work. No wonder we are called the masterpiece of, of God. I mean, it's just like you've justified, sanctified, glorified. Glorification addresses the future state of our lives. Just like past, present, and future are covered by the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Key verse, Romans 8.10. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, he also justified. Whom he justified, he also glorified. You guys, what is the righteousness that we are to have? Oh, well, it speaks, of, it speaks of the surety of position before the Father in His Son. That I'm loved, I'm forgiven, I'm empowered, I have His favor, justified, sanctified, glorified. The basis of relationship with God is not what I do, but what Christ has done for me. That is absolutely critical. Let, let, me, let me tell you the alternative. If the Apostle Paul were here, uh, and we've talked about this before. Well, let me just read Romans 8.15. Check this out. Paul said, oh, you mean us? He said, for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption of sons by which we cry, Abba, Father. That is huge, what he just said there. Whoa. Spirit of what? Spirit of slavery? It sounds so crazily archaic. Who's talking about slavery anymore? Uh, it still exists, unfortunately. A leading to fear. To be a slave or have a slave mentality is to live with a sense of fear. You bet. I mean, your sense of well-being as a slave depends upon you know, how your slave owner is treating you, and it's based upon your performance. And if you're not performing to meet the expectation of your slave owner. It's like, I mean, is a slave ever have a sense of well-being? I, I don't know. I mean, it's so sad. But the, the idea is, is that Paul is saying, hey, look, we're, we're sons of the king. And to have any sense of, oh, an instability and not sure who we are and who we are in his eyes, well, that's not what the Lord wants us to have. I mean, he doesn't want us to live our lives with a sense that, or a sense of well-being that's based on a, performance-based identity. And if I'm doing well and feeling well, we've talked about this before, and, and looking good and stuff, then I am good. Then I am good. You know, if, if I'm meeting my own standards, I think I'm meeting the standards of the Lord, then, then, I, then I have a sense of confidence in life. 
Here's the reality, is we're all sinners and we fall short and we don't even uphold our own standards. And, and, and the thing is, is that, look, if, if I don't get this breastplate of righteousness right, then I'm going to live my life. Well, here's what's going to end up happening. This is why a lot of people are not in church. It's like, what are you, what's the point about that? No, I'm just saying why people come to church. I'm not just this one. I'm just talking about in general. And then split. Why? Because really they have not experienced the benefit of the breastplate of righteousness. They end up just like, oh, well, um, God exists and he wants relationship with me. And, they start, and he exists as a means to an end to meet my my objectives and goals, and then I'm going to follow him, and I hope my expectations are met, but my expectations are not met. Maybe they're not met because I'm not performing well. Maybe because, I, because I've blown it, and then I don't have the assurance that he's going to bless me. That's a slave mentality. I mean, that, that is just being under the pressure and under the gun. That is not the breastplate of righteousness. I mean, the Lord wants you to, to protect your heart. You are secure in Christ. He is with you. You have his favor. He has his hand on you. Can I hear a big amen to that? Okay, so don't make like, like relationship with the Father like some performance-based identity. If I perform well and I run well and I do all that, then I can just sit in my heavenly Father's lap and I have the confidence of being his kid. That's not Christianity. And, and Paul is saying, man, for you have not received the spirit of slavery, leading to fear again. So this breastplate of righteousness is positional, secure, positional. It also has a practical aspect to it. In other words, it's living out a godly life, gets back to working out your salvation with fear and trembling. And this means to make godly decisions because decisions have consequences and therefore make godly decisions so your decisions then make you. And the question becomes, how protected are the most vital parts of your life? Are they being protected by what Christ has already accomplished on the cross? And then are you working out your salvation living a godly life because he's given us power to do that, making right decisions in my marriage, in my personal life, in purity, in my single singleness life, even in the church life as I am a participant to the greater whole. So in summation, the breastplate of righteousness is both positional and practical. But look, let's, let's bring this home a little bit in a little different way. Hey, when's the last time you thought about how you think? <laughs> I love that question. When's the last time you thought about how you think? Um, that's a great question. It's very important. It's very important when it comes to actually ensuring that the breastplate of righteousness is protecting your vital organs, so to speak, and protecting your heart. It should not surprise us that there's emphasis on not only what you think, but how you think in the scriptures. Jesus began his public ministry by saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. I mean, here, here's how I would interpret it when I first started to listen to Terry and Nancy Clark music a long time ago. 18 years of age I was. A long time ago. Just a few years ago. Okay, anyways, um, I would think, okay, Jesus, repent. You know, he says, repent. Kingdom of God is ahead. Okay, turn from like crazy, stupid things and uh, live a righteous life. Um, that's the fruit of repentance. 
We've talked about this billions of times. The Greek word is metanoia. You know, meta, metamorphosis, caterpillar, to a butterfly. Metanoia, thinking, change the way you think. I mean, 30, 50,000 thoughts a day. You know, and, and our, actually our thoughts, you know, what we think, and you know this, has an impact even physiologically, even in our brain creating neural pathways. But the most important area to change the way you think is Jesus is the king of the kingdom. And when he said the kingdom is at hand, what is he saying? Hey, the king has arrived. So follow me and I'll tell you what it looks like. When the king is on the earth, he brings wholeness. In addition to that, he delivers people from darkness. He brings under his feet demonic spirits that are real. They're not behind every bush. They don't have to be to deceive people. But he brings wholeness. He brings peace. He brings shalom. So look, here's the thing. I want us to think differently, afresh, in accordance to what it looks like to put on the breastplate of righteousness, kind of in the name of having done all to stand. Look, when you are guilty, and we're all guilty because we all sin, how should you think? Man, you got to put on the breastplate of righteousness. And you know, the word devil initially was a judicial term in the context of a court of law. And the devil wants to focus you on your failures. He wants to paralyze your progress. He in no way is ever going to testify, if you will, or highlight the heavenly father. He's just going to say, you're a stinking idiot. And the father doesn't want to talk to you. So leave. Okay, he wants to condemn you. He wants to come in between you and relationship with the heavenly father. He is like this prosecuting attorney. And he would love to point out your sin without bringing the Father into the picture. Now look, there's no question we are sinners. Can't, I'm going to call for an amen. Let's hear a big one. Can I hear an amen to that? You know, like, this means I agree. Okay, I'm going to stop doing the amen thing. But anyways, look, I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. The Bible says you say you're, not, you're a sinner. We all sin. We're all, you know, still, we're, we're to sin less. We're, we, you know, let's, let's try not to sin. That was my prayer this morning. Help me, Lord, not to sin once. You know, I mean, that's what I prayed. But, we, but if we do sin, we have this fantastic lawyer, this advocate, the Lord Jesus. I mean, that's what John was saying in 1 John. So look, we're all sinners. Paul would say, I'm a sinner, chief among sinners, right? But when we sin, it in no way undermines the magnitude of what Jesus Christ accomplished for us on the cross. No way. What he accomplished on the cross is bigger than any stinking sin I've ever committed. I mean, grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. So listen, let's, listen, let's, not, let's not be offensive to the spirit of grace when we sin. Let us remember he purchased it all for us. The debt of our sin, every blessing we'll ever know, our ticket to heaven, so to speak. So putting on the breastplate means, yeah, I've sinned, but the Father is waiting to talk to me. Oh, in fact, he's running towards me. That's the breastplate of righteousness. Hey, let's flesh out some nuances to it. If you blow it and sin, a moral argument would be, 
You know, so if, if I say this, and I blew it, man, I was just lazy. I totally blew it. I, might, I, might, I allowed my mind to go some crazy place. I made a crazy decision. A moral argument would be, hey, repent of your laziness. That's not the breastplate of righteousness. A therapeutic argument maybe it would be like, well, look, Greg, um, look, the Lord knows your frame. It's true. And he knows you're weak. I know. Okay, that's true. So don't stress it. Okay, but that's actually not the breastplate of righteousness. I'm just, get, I'm just getting to more to the core of what the breastplate of righteousness is. The breastplate of righteousness is to repent, change the way you think, and, and embrace that Jesus Christ paid it all for you. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. I love that. That is the right repentance, changing the way you think, making sure your vital organs, your heart, your inner life is protected. Hey, in the name of verse 13, having done all to stand, what about when we're demoralized? And this is like the second idea. Did we got that up there, bro? Thank you so much. You're awesome, Jetson. It's like when we're demoralized and your feelings are saying, in effect, get in touch with me. You know, you got to put on the breastplate of righteousness and get in touch with God. Because your feelings, our feelings, are not our faith. And, you know, faith carries the idea of what informs our thinking. And what needs to inform our thinking is the truth of who the Lord is and his word. So our feelings are not the breastplate of protection. You know, have you ever woken up in the morning and you just feel lousy? Have you ever woken up in the morning and it just almost seems like there's a cloud over your head? Have you ever, I know you've experienced this. And it's like, sometimes, and sometimes it could be like there's some crazy things happening. Maybe I need to confess sin, maybe. But listen, there's all kinds of reasons why we can feel low, why our feelings are really pressing in on us. Why there can be a sense of even depression that we are experiencing. All kinds of reasons. But if you allow your feelings to inform your thinking, it it leads to the folly of a victim's mentality, which paralyzes progress. So it's like, if you allow your feelings, you're kind of demoralized and down, and we've all been there. It can be all kinds of reasons, like... Your output is just more in your input. You, you, like you need a nap. Like Warren Wiersbe said, one of the most spiritual things you can do is take a nap. I'm so glad he said that. Anyway, okay, he's a great theologian too. You know, so, or, you know, it's just my life has not turned out the way I'd hoped. A, anyway, my point is, is like when you're feeling low and demoralized, be careful. Be careful not to allow your feelings to dictate what is true. Your feelings, we talked about this before, like don't tell us what is true. Our feelings are not the breastplate of righteousness. And if we go with our feelings, oftentimes it leads to a victim's mentality where these other ideas pile on, like life has not turned out as I hope, or I've been injured, or there's been some perceived injury, and I'm going to be bitter that such circumstances took place in my life. All of that translate, I will allow my pain to paralyze my progress. When instead what we need to do, Philippians 4, 4, and we've got to step into this, And you know, sometimes it's a fight, it's to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. It's like worship the Lord. It's like in 
the midst of your feelings going crazy and you're feeling demoralized, man, just get a campfire, light it on, just sit there and go big and worship the Lord. Worship him amidst the struggle itself. You know, Ben Corson will be here in a few weeks, said hopelessness about a problem is a bigger problem than my problem. And when my problem is too big for me, it's just the right size for God. So my praise will be a problem for my problem. I love that. It's true. So it's like I'm demoralized, feeling bad. Be careful. Be careful because it's like you're vulnerable to pull up every injury in your life, pile on there, and it leads to a victim's mentality, which simply means now I'm allowing my life to be paralyzed from moving forward. Are you with me on that, right? Okay, lastly, hey, in the name of doing all to stand. Uh, Like, man, what do you do when you're discouraged? When you have low strength? We need to do what our, our Lord did, which is he kept his eyes on the heavenly father. And he kept moving forward. And as a result, when we do that, we have the best father, Papa, who ends up training us in righteousness. You know, there was a turning point in David's life. And I mentioned this a bunch, but I'm teaching this class on David. So I got David on the brain in in this college class. And it's, um, and and I really, you really feel chapter 27, long story short, when it hits you. Because there's a, it's a turning point in David's life. I mean, he's had Saul tried to throw a spear three times at him. And it's either Saul has this really terrible hitch in his throw and he's just like, he's like 6'4", quarterback is really inaccurate. Or, or, Dave, or David's really athletic and just like, I know you can't hit me, so I'll just dodge it. Or both. I actually think Saul's probably a little uncoordinated, and David's really athletic, but it's a whole other story. And David has dodged these assaults from, from uh, Saul. He's, 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 I mean, I can't believe he survived you know, maybe 10 years, we don't know for sure, Saul hunting him like a dog. And he survived. And in and, and chapter 26, is long story short, David sneaks in Saul's camp because Saul is, a, is pursuing him to kill him with 3,000 men to show that, look, I'm not going to kill you. Doggone it, why do you see me as a threat? I mean, be blown away by the goodness and graciousness and beauty of God and fear him and don't fear me. It's like Saul was addicted to the destruction of David, ends up destroying himself. David steals the, his uh, spear, takes his water jug, long story short, he just shows, look, will you, will you stop pursuing me? I'm not your threat, blah, blah, blah. But got, it's a long story. Anyways, after this, I, I'm just convinced David is totally demoralized. He, it says, and David then said in his heart, it says, David said in his heart, David said in his heart, what did he say in his heart? He goes on to say, Saul's going to kill me. I'm done. I mean, it's like, hey, eight, 10 years, whatever, I've been able to survive, but, and I've been trying to reconcile with this guy, but doggone it, he's never going to relinquish. I'm a dead dog. And, and he started, okay, watch this. So he has, he's been successful with the physical battles. He's been dodging like the, the, the spears and he's been dodging like Saul's armies and all these fighting men and stuff and he's doing really good. Physically now, 
The big struggle is the battle. Well, it's not against flesh and blood. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. Now it's the battle in his mind and his heart. And this is where he begins to lose it. And he's like, he says in his heart, well, he's, he's discouraged, <laughs> really, really discouraged. And, and it results in a breakdown where he ends up trying to find refuge and is does successfully for a while in the Philistine camp. There are all kinds of triggers for discouragement. When your output is more than your input, that's a, you, know, you need rest. When, when you're battling illness, when there's relational conflict, when there's physical exhaustion, after a major victory maybe, after a huge disappointment, when expectations are not met. You know, they're saying of millennials that so many of them are committing suicide in record numbers. You know, kids from 20 to 30 years of age, many of which are very successful, materially speaking successful. But what they're realizing is, is that they, they don't know the meaning of life. So it's like they're living this illusion that materialism or social media, whatever it is, is going to deliver what only God can deliver in their life. It's not, it doesn't deliver, and it leads them majorly disillusioned. There's all, all kinds of reasons, triggers for discouragement. Isolation is another. In David's life at this time, I mean, it's like it's practically almost all of those. And, and I, I don't know, are you discouraged at this time? I and mean, we all become discouraged at times and we have low strength. What are we to do? What are we to do at those times? Well, I'll tell you, let's, let's look to the captain of our salvation, which is Jesus. And we're going to talk about a helmet of salvation in the weeks to come. But let's look to him. I mean, he came to make us right with the Father. He came to give us righteousness. Can I hear an amen to that? Give it to us. He, exchange, he gave us his righteousness. And he calls us to keep moving, keep walking, persevere, even amidst the discouragement and the depression. Keep your eyes on the Father as he kept his eyes on the Father, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he's sweating drops of blood under incredible duress. Not my will, but your will be done. Because as we do, it's the Father who trains us in righteousness. It's one thing to like, okay, I got the righteousness. Thank you. Hey, but this working out of what you've worked in me, well, what's critical to that is actually persevering. Never give up. We've talked about it before. But Christianity is a little bit like riding a bike. You need to keep pedaling. If you stop, if you stop pedaling, you take yourself out of the place. The Father can train you. So he puts in love in you. He puts you in a sense of justice. He puts in you purity. He puts, he puts himself in you. And to work that out, perseverance is critical to build the muscles of godly character. The Father's training is to grow you, to be the person he made you to be, the person you never thought you'd be, but you wanted to be the person actually you already are in Christ. But putting on his strength is essential. Look, I'm like, 19 years of age. My father is working for Mattel. 
I, 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 I asked him, I said, you know, I'm a freshman in, in college. And I said, Dad, can I, can I go to New York with you? And it's like the toy fair in Manhattan. And he takes me along. And it's in February. I think it was like February 3rd. Actually, I just turned 20. No, no, I was 19 years. Okay, 19. That's all right. So anyways, so um, I, I run upstairs. And I have, my, you know, my bag's at the door. I'll never forget it. And, he, and he, he's like at the door. And he looks at me. And he says, where's your jacket? Where's your coat? And he asked me, where's my coat? I had my coat. I'm a cool little leather thing right here. You know, just, just nice and tight. He actually gave it to me for Christmas. My jeans, tennis shoes, maybe a, my baseball hat. You know, and, and he said, he said, that's not a coat. And I'm thinking, hey man, I thought about actually this. This is my coat. This is my coat for New York. He said, that, that's, that's not a coat. And so he said, wait a second. So he goes into the, in his room and he pulls this long, ugly, gray, like navy, whatever, gray, I mean, like, thing that he got in 54. I mean, I'm not, I was so like, no, 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 no. You want me to wear that? No, I was like, Sir, just, yeah, yeah, this is a coat. Oh, so glad he gave that to me. No, no, I've never, like, you got to see, man, I grew up in Southern California. I grew up near the beach. I've never been back east. New York had one of the worst snowstorms it had in years. I mean, when we were trying to leave, we got stuck on a, on a on the train. It was terrible just getting down to Washington or wherever, Washington North or South. I don't know. But it was, it was like, I was so, it was so cold. No, really, I thought it was so cold that you could literally just felt like I could just literally fall over and just sit there and die. It was so cold with the wind coming through, you know, those large buildings. It was, I am so glad my dad told me to wear that coat. Okay, here's the thing. Our heavenly papa's behind all of this. Our heavenly father's behind, finally, my brethren, you know, you know be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Just remember that. So when, when Paul is saying, hey, put on the belt of truth, just know that our Father is saying, I want you to wear it. I don't want you to give any room to the enemy. And if you're struggling, come to me. And he, and he wants us to wear the breastplate of righteousness. Can I hear another amen to that? Behind it is the most wonderful Father who has our best interest in mind. Never forget it. And church family, look, we're moving towards Passover. This is such a great study. I can't wait for the weeks to come. We're moving towards Passover. Look, we're, we're in it together. Let's move together in this. Let's be in prayer about that. That bell. Let's be thinking of each other. Hey, it'd be really awesome, like throughout the week, ever think of the church? Well, please think of the church. Pray. Think of people in our church. Pray for them. That they have that belt fastened, that the breastplate is on. So absolutely critical all to his glory. Can I hear another big amen to that? Let's pray. Lord, Lord, thank you for you. We love you. And Lord, I, I, I thank you. You are here uh, I thank you, you are here in our midst. Um, and Lord, you said that you've come to give life and that more abundantly. I mean, you came to really destroy the darkness behind the darkness, meaning you came to bring right relationship, Lord Jesus, with the Father that brings the healing and the wholeness and the purpose of life that you intended. 
us to experience. And Lord, I want to pray if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, I pray you would draw them to yourself. You say, what do you mean that, um, you know, know the Lord? Well, listen, number one, recognize, recognize what he's done for you. You're not a mistake. You're not a byproduct of mindless nature. God made you. He created you. And really the genius of the genius himself, the Lord, is in our midst, right in the rows here, meaning God created us and he created us down to the cellular level where there's a creation, there's a creator, there's no doubt about that. And he loves you and he wants relationship with you. He loves you enough not to leave you the way you are. You know, earlier point was, hey, the enemy is not going to, and I failed to mention this, but he's not going to focus on the Father. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except to be through me. That is a flat-out fact. There is no way I can have this relationship that God intended that we've been talking about without Christ. He is the key who hung, bled, and gave his life on the cross, bridged the gap between God and man. Sin is much more serious than we often think of it. It's much more serious. It's like the the Lord coming with a holy x-ray machine and seeing some cancer cells. That's serious. And who we are is who we are on the inside. And there's there's a virus, there's a cancer that the Lord wants to cleanse us and bring wholeness to that is, is spiritual, that is a broken relationship with the one who made us. Listen, he made you to know him. This is not religion, this is a relationship. And to embrace Christ is to have your heart enlarged with a, with a greater love towards your fellow man, not to make you narrow, but to make you bigger than ever, more like him. And three days later, Jesus resurrected from the dead, he's alive. And he's coming again. And everything is moving towards his kingdom. There's a future. The question is, what is it? Who holds it? He does. And number two, to look, I got to do something with that. Repent. Jesus said, unless you repent, you'll perish. Receive him. You say, what do you mean? Well, he stands at the door and knocks, he says. And if anyone would hear his voice and open the door, he would come in. I would encourage you to do that. You can do that this morning. How? He really is just a prayer away. Those who call upon the Lord shall be saved. Would you like to do that this morning? Would you like to pray to ask him to be your savior and Lord, to leave you with the assurance your sins are forgiven? If you're to die, you, you have hope beyond the grave because that can take place. That's not, that's, these are not ideas that originate with me. I'm merely a conduit. I'm merely just a, one beggar telling another where to find the bread. But but to receive and to call upon him. And do it now. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time. Hey, look, no one can even come to Jesus without the Holy Spirit drawing him. It is a supernatural reality, way beyond any of us in this room. But the Lord works in moments like these. And there's an opportunity to make a decision. My invitation is, which is really the Lord's invitation, is to make a right decision for Christ. How many of you would say, Greg, you know what, this morning, I want that settled. I want Christ in my life. I want to leave her knowing if I were to die, I'd go to heaven. I want that settled. If that's you, raise up your hand right now. Let me pray for you. And by raising up your hand, you'd be saying, yes. And I want that settled. And I want to receive him as my Lord and Savior. If you're in the front, you're in the back, 
you want to receive Christ, you raise up your hand. And by raising up your hand, you'd be saying yes. Look, I want to make sure an invitation's been given. This is really the most important moment of the service. So just in these last few moments, if you would like to receive Christ, you raise up your hand. I'm going to lead you in a word of prayer. That's why I'm asking you to raise your hand. And if, you, if you'd like to receive Christ, you raise up your hand. Lord, I want to thank you for this morning. You're awesome. And I want to pray if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, draw them to yourself. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And everyone who agreed said, amen. Hey, let's all stand at this time. Let's, let's go vertical.